said they've probably forgotten a lot, so we're going to go back to the sin part. So go back to Romans 3. Just kidding. Stand up. We're in Romans 8. If you've never read Romans 8, you are in for a treat. If you have our black Bible, it's page 944. I don't want to steal Luke's message, but Romans 8. God gets down and dirty with just how amazing he is. He talks some big talk that we need to hear. Romans 8, page 944. I know this gets said a lot, but this is the word of God. This is God speaking to us right now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, yes, good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, glad that you're here. I love the Peyton Manning jersey back there, Josh. It looks great. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and, uh, and really delighted to be able to get into God's Word with you this morning. Before I do, I just want to um, just publicly acknowledge, I've been able to do this privately, but we had an incredible picnic last week after, the, after this service, that celebration. Yeah. And... Um, and so I just wanted to acknowledge Stephanie Cockrum and Rebecca Madrid and Ellen Mars and Tim Campbell and Mike Freiling and a number of other people that just really made that happen. And uh, it was a great day, great event. And so just publicly thank you uh, for you. Yeah, thank you. As Josh said, we're back into the book of Romans. We started uh, this just after Easter last year and kind of worked our way most of the year through Romans. And uh, we're going to pick up today in Romans chapter 8, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll take a, a, little, a few little breaks here and there throughout the year, but we'll, this will take us really most of the year um, to go through the book of Romans. And uh, when we first announced that we were studying Romans, I had a lot of people come up to me and say, oh, I'm so excited, I can't wait, I'm so, I'm so thrilled we're doing Romans. And, and my bet would be that for most of those people, what they were excited about with the book of Romans was chapter 8. That's what we're about to start. Chapter 8, we'll spend, uh, I think, about seven, eight, nine weeks in chapter 8, and we will be unpacking this. Uh, Jim Boyce, who was a pastor and a commentator, he, he wrote this. He said that the Bible is like a beautiful wedding ring, and Romans is like the diamond on the ring, and Romans 8 is like the sparkle in the diamond. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture. And all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is useful. Uh, but so many people have found so much help and encouragement from Romans in general and chapter 8 in particular. The theme of Romans 8 as we look at this over the next few months really is this. It's security for the children of God. The security of the children of God. That you are, if you are a child of God, you are loved Nothing can separate you from that love, he says. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. If you're a child of God, you are kept, you are called, you are secure. You have bold access to the throne of God. This is great news. And, and this boldness, this security, this acceptance, this assurance that we have as the children of God, it comes to us, we learn in Romans 8, through the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, is the one who sets us free. He is the one who gives us assurance. He is the one who uh, allows us to call out Abba, Father. He is the one who intercedes for us on our behalf. He is the one who gives us and helps us to experience this security we have because of the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is actually mentioned 19 times in the book of Romans. He's a central, or not, not the book of Romans, 19 times in Romans 8. 
more than any other chapter in the Bible is the Spirit of God. I, I gave you a little preview of this a couple months ago when we were looking at chapter 7. We looked at chapter 7 and, and I told you that all these themes of chapter 7 was about the law and about you doing a lot of hard work and, uh, and, and the, the chapter 8 was really different. And so I had taken all the text of Romans chapter 7 and put it in a website called Wordle. And what it does is based on how many times a word is used in any group of text, it makes it bigger or smaller. And so here was chapter 7. We had looked at chapter 7, uh, and, and we saw the big theme there was, was law and sin. And if you, the thought being, if I do the right thing, and if I try to focus, and if I try to overcome, and Paul goes on to say, you, you can't. There's all this focus on the law. And then we see chapter 8. Look at the same thing for chapter 8. The Spirit of God. And there's going to be some contrast with the flesh. There's a lot of discussion about living by the flesh versus living by the Spirit. But the Spirit of God is the one who gives the children of God comfort. That's where we're going to look in these next uh, weeks ahead. But today, uh, today we're going to focus in on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. And today we're going to get to the heart of, of a very key idea that's, that's really important for us as a church. If you've been around here for, for a period of time, or if you ever come to a Connect lunch or anything like that, you'll hear a phrase that we often use to describe our church, that we are gospel-centered and outward-focused. Gospel-centered, outward-focused. Outward-focus is a little bit more self-explanatory, I think, just thinking about people outside of yourself. We try to live that way individually. We try to live that way as a church. We try to use our money that way. We try to use our time and our energy, all of it to, to be a blessing outside. But gospel-centered is one that, is, it's a little more of a catchphrase. It's a little more of an insider lingo kind of a thing. And, 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 and what it is, is the idea that the good news of the gospel is central to us. Well, if you want to understand the idea of gospel-centered, gospel-centeredness, if you've ever scratched your head and gone, what are they talking about? Romans 8.1 is at the heart of gospel-centered. It's at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of what it is to be the people of God centered on the good news of God. This is a hugely important verse. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. That's a big statement. Most of your troubles aren't financial mostly. They're not primarily a marital situation. They're not primarily an employment situation. They're not primarily a circumstantial situation. What Lloyd-Jones says is that the, the most of our problems come because we fail to realize, to believe, to embrace the truth of Romans 8.1. Let me just give you some examples. What's at stake? What's at stake today? It, whether you embrace this. Well, here's some things. Without embracing uh, what we're going to learn about today, number one, you'll feel plagued by guilt. You'll constantly live with a sense that you're falling short and, and you're not doing enough. Secondly, you'll, you'll feel a need to constantly prove yourself, right? If, if you're not doing enough, if you're not living up to a, the, the standard enough, then you've got to prove yourself. You've got to prove yourself to God, prove yourself to other people, prove yourself to mom or dad, prove yourself to even yourself. But you'll always live with this pressure to, to prove yourself. Third thing, if, if you don't embrace the truth of Romans 8.1, is you'll be way too sensitive to criticism. You'll be defensive. Because if your life is all about achieving and performing, and then people critique your performance, it's like they're not just critiquing your work, they're critiquing you at your heart because you've built your life, 
Your identity is built on your ability to perform. So you'll, you'll feel this constant, hey, stay away from me, and what about you? And, and you'll be very defensive. Uh, fourth, you'll lack confidence in prayer. God will be distant. Prayers will be general, boring, tepid, lukewarm. Without embracing the truth of Romans 8, 1, 5th, you'll be tempted to behave in addictive ways to deal with all the pressure and guilt you feel. See, have you ever wondered why do people do, have and do these addictive things that are bad for them? Right, like, like someone who, who constantly is using alcohol to numb their pain, it's like that's a bad ha- habit. That's a bad idea. Why do you keep doing that? Or many people, it's food. Or other people, it's, it's things, you know, sexual behaviors that are deviant and that are bad and that are destructive. It's cutting sometimes, a physical kind of a thing. These addictive behaviors, why do we do that? Often it's because we feel so much pressure because we're not living up and we feel guilty and we got to do more and that's at least a relief from the pressure. Even though it doesn't make any sense logically, that's what we do. We run to things to escape the pressure and the guilt. It's because we don't believe this verse. And the sixth thing, if, if, if you don't embrace this, you'll have way less motivation to obey God. So you look at that list, and I don't know whether you come in here today as, a, as someone that's not, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you haven't been to church ever or in a really long time, and you might be wondering, gosh, is this, is this for me? Well, are any of those potentially true of you? Then you're going to find help today. Maybe you would call yourself a Christian and you would sort of ace the, the, you know, the, the how do you become a Christian test and, and you would know all the answers to that and you would know that, that you're forgiven in Christ but, but you look at this list and you go, you know what, I, I am really sensitive to criticism. You know, my prayer really are kind of weak, not bold. You know, I do have this secret thing I keep going to for comfort and release. So whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian, Paul's going to invite you to believe this truth. And it's going to set you free. So here's what I want to do. I want to just dig into verses 1 and 2 and and look at them and then try to apply this uh, more specifically to our lives. Before we uh, dig in, though, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for meeting us where we're at. Thank you for addressing our real needs. God, give us ears to hear from your word this good news, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to just kind of go uh, phrase by phrase, in some cases word by word, uh, through chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and, and, and just make sure we really understand what the Apostle Paul is, is trying to communicate to us. Verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus. The first phrase, there is therefore. There is therefore. And any time we read the word therefore, I've I've tried to teach you this, and I mention this a lot. Anytime you read the Bible and you read the word therefore, you've got to ask a question. The question is, what is the therefore therefore? What's it therefore? What is he referring to? Right? If I say therefore, do this, you're going, well, in light of something else. Well, in light of what? What is Paul referring to? What's the therefore therefore? And the answer is, uh, directly, is verses 24 and 25 as part of the answer, but he's also referring to his whole, uh, the whole book that has come before. So look back at, at Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. This, this is what just came before what he wrote. 
he said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He'd been saying, I try to obey and I try to do the right thing and I try to use willpower and I try to add rules and I try to do it all because I kind of want to do the right thing, but I, I try and I fail. Who will deliver me from this? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In light of that, Paul says, there is therefore now condemna- no condemnation in light of that because Christ Jesus is delivering us from a body of death. And so Paul's referring to that, but, but he's really, in a sense, referring back to everything he's covered so far. The, one commentator said that, the, that Romans 8, 1, and, and Romans 8 really is kind of like a snowball running downhill. And it's just picking up steam and picking up size, and it's just building on all the truths and the themes and the ideas that have been coming so far in Romans. So let's just review for a moment what's happened in Romans. And, and if, if you have been with us, this will just serve as a review and bring up to speed. It's been a few months since we've been there. And if this is your first time or, or new to this series, this will be really helpful for you. In chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul who, by the way, was a persecutor of the church. He was trying to kill Christians, and then his whole life got turned around when he had an encounter with Jesus, became a huge champion of the church. And he's writing this letter to the the churches and the Christians in Rome, uh, who at this point he's never met before. And he's writing them to help them understand the gospel. And in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. It's the power of God. It's a a story of salvation. That's what the gospel is, and that's what he's going to unpack in this book. God has made us, and God has has owned us, but we have turned our backs from him, and that's what he begins to unpack in chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 1, he says, you know, irreligious people, they're far from God, because even though they know enough about God through creation to at least know he's there and at least have a guilty conscience, even though they know that, they still don't honor him, and they worship created things instead of the creator. Chapter 2, he gets to religious people. He says, religious people, they should know better. And they look down their nose at all the irreligious people, but they do the same stuff. Chapter 3, he comes and he says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. All of us naturally come into the world bent on sin. Doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but it means we're as bad off as we could be. Because he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our only chance to be made right at the end of chapter 3, he tells us, is, is through Jesus, who was a propitiation, a wrath absorber. Jesus paid the penalty on the cross for us and to be given as a gift to us that we could receive by faith. So the good news after three chapters of bad news is that you can be made right with God by grace through faith. Not a result of works, not a result of anything you would do. And we talked quite a bit in, in those early months about that grace. I was reminded of this uh, just the other day on Friday. I, I got to take a tour of the new LDS temple here in town. And I don't know if you've had a chance to go or if you're planning to go. It's a spectacular building. It is gorgeous. And uh, the people there were incredibly friendly that, that helped us around and showed us around and uh, really treated us well. But they give you a pamphlet when you go, and, and one of the things that it says on the pamphlet is that eternal life is available to all who will receive grace through obedience. That's different. That's different than what Paul's talking about. Grace is by definition an unmerited favor. It's, it's, a, it's a gift. 
You can't receive grace through obedience. That's, that's wages. That's what you've earned. And Paul says here, the wages, if you want what you've earned, the wages of sin is death. You've earned death. And so we have a message that, that runs contrary to not just Mormonism, but every kind of other religion, every kind of other worldview. It's a radical message of grace. So radical that Paul's audience would have started to go, man, could this be right? Is this how it always worked? And so Paul says, yes, that's how it's always worked. He goes in chapter 4 to Abraham. He says, Abraham, the father of our faith, he was made right with God by faith, not through works of the law, not by being circumcised, but by trusting God. He believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And then in chapter 5, he introduces us to an interesting concept, the idea that we are naturally born slaves to sin in Adam, that we come into the world in Adam, and that we need to be brought into Christ. And so we talked about this when we were back there in chapter 5. We said it was kind of like this. You know when you have little kids and they go to the grocery store and they want to get in the, the car carts. You know those carts that have the little cars attached? And, and what they like about it is they can steer, right? And they feel like they're directing traffic and they're doing that. But the reality is they have no control over the cart, do they? They think they're steering, they think they're going, but you're really pushing it. And the idea of being born in Adam is that all of us come into the world in the Adam car cart. And we're steering, we're going, yeah, look at me, look at all the good I'm doing, look at all that I'm after. And the reality is that the, the force of being in Adam is really what's driving us. And we are on a path away from God towards sin. And we need, by grace, to be taken out of the Adam car cart and into the Jesus car cart. Driven by what he has done. On our behalf, and that's the offer. How do we know God's love? He demonstrated it for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to make it where by faith we could be moved into that cart. Now, some at this point, they're reading Paul's letter, and Paul's been having all these conversations with people as he travels the world, and some he knows are thinking, that sounds too easy. You're saying, I don't have to do anything just by faith, just by trusting what Jesus did. I can be made right with God. That seems way too easy. And they begin to ask questions like, well, Paul, does, does that mean we should just go on sinning so that grace would abound? Right? The more I sin, the more God will forgive me. That means he'll get more glory. Is that what you're saying, Paul? And he says, no, by no means. Inconceivable, he says. Why? Because he says you've been united to Christ by faith. You've been brought into the new cart. And he uses all these analogies of union. That we're, that we're connected to Christ. We're in Christ. We've been set free from sin. So that's where we've been. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, there is therefore. In light of this reality, in light of everything we've looked at so far, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is therefore now. Now. Next word I want you to look at. What that means is that this is different. This is new. Uh, there was a way of, 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 there was a reality before, and there's a new one now. In light of those things, now something's changed, something's different. What is that? In light of all that God has done, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. What does that mean? Here's the definition of the word condemnation. It's a judicial pronouncement upon a guilty person. It's a punishment, it's a penalty, it's a verdict. Uh, 
Condemnation is a, a guilty verdict, but, but it has with it the idea not just of a guilty verdict, but of a, uh, th- there's the verdict and the sentence will be executed through it. So just to kind of give you an example, I, um, I just got in the mail a card the other day that I have to call in about maybe being on a jury. You ever get those? And I thought, man, I, I again? Right? Because a few years ago, I served on a jury. I served for about two weeks. It was a civil case. Uh, some people were sued over a lot of money uh, related to a construction thing, and I sat on the jury. It wasn't a, a guilty, not guilty criminal trial, but it was a, a civil trial, and as part of the jury, we had to determine whether the, the, who was at fault in this particular case, and if they were at fault, what the damages were. And I was amazed, by the way. Just, it was crazy. Once we said, okay, this person is at fault, and, uh, and therefore they need to pay a certain amount of money to the other party, we had freedom to say any amount of money. We could have been like $50 billion, and they owed us, right? It was like, wait, you're not, I said, you know, we asked in the judge, like, it's not like A, B, or C, like, we, no, you just pick. It's wild. And so we're doing our best to go, yeah, we think this person's at fault, and we think this is how much the sentence should be. And we deliver, in a sense, a verdict, but we didn't execute the verdict, right? We didn't, like, say, you owe this much money, and then go collect it from them. Like, I wasn't knocking at corporate headquarters asking for a check. And it's, so in some way, so you get a picture of what's going on. The difference, though, is God sees all of it. He sees all of our lives, right? After this trial, it was really interesting, the lawyers had the option to come in and to talk with us. And one of the things they did is they talked to us about all the stuff that wasn't admissible in court. And you kind of went, well, that would have been helpful to know. I mean, there was all this information that for various legal reasons just wasn't admissible. That's not how it works with God. Right? We're trying to make a, a just decision based on partial information. Not God. He has all the information. It's all admissible in court. He sees the depths of our heart. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words. He knows our motives. He knows everything. It's all admissible. And while we're going, wow, we think this person might be at fault, God knows. God knows that we're at fault. God knows that we're guilty. And God is the one who will execute the sentence. God is the one who will pour out his wrath on us if we don't trust him. See, the Bible is filled with all this discussion that God is a holy and God is a just God. Sure, he's forgiving, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Here's what it says in Exodus 34 when when God is describing himself to Moses. He says this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And at that point, you're just going, wow, that's amazing. God's a God of mercy and grace and compassion but he's also a God of justice. If you keep reading, he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now we could go into a whole discussion of generational sin and what does that mean and and all that. The point I want you to see is when God describes his character, he describes mercy and justice. And he will do what's right. He's not partial. And he will by no means clear 
the guilty. So here's what this means. Because Romans 8.1 is saying, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. You are clear. You are free. You are forgiven. But he just said, he will by no means clear the guilty. How does that happen? It happens because we are cleared because Jesus was treated as guilty. When we die, either we will face the wrath of God or Jesus already faced it for us. But, but the, the verse is still true. He doesn't clear the guilty. He doesn't just say, well, boys will be boys. Sweep it under the rug. It's okay. I know, you're just human. No. There's no condemnation in Christ because Jesus paid it all. It's, it's really, I mean, think about this. No condemnation, no penalty, no fine, no, no judgment against you. That's scandalous, right? It's as if God says, hey, here's a credit card. Spend all the money you want. I got the bill. And so there we are. We sin and we sin and we swim. Swipe it again. That was fun. Swipe it again. I got the bill. Right? And we're uncomfortable. That's like, that feels, that doesn't feel right. Like that sounds too, too free, too gracious. It sounds scandalous, doesn't it? Like, oh, that doesn't. Which is why a lot of us go, well, I got to add some religion to that. I got to do more. You know, yeah, grace, but it's probably grace through obedience. No. It's grace. There's no condemnation in Christ. None. Which means all your past sin is forgiven. All your present sin in Christ is forgiven. All your future sin is forgiven. All your little sin, all the white lies and the exaggerations and the second glances forgiven all the big sins the adultery the abuse and the anger and the drugs forgiven wow that's big now here's what's interesting when you when you look at this verse in our english translations it says there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But in the Greek text, there's actually not a, not a verb there that's is. So in the Greek text, it literally reads like this. Therefore, now no condemnation. It's almost like an announcement. It's like, a, it's like hear ye, hear ye. This is why we call the gospel news. It's a proclamation. It's an announcement. Therefore, now no condemnation. It's a big banner that hangs over the people of God. It's news. This is why we always say the gospel is not advice. Hey, do this, be better, try harder. The gospel is news. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's news. Oh man, all this freedom, all this blessing, all this grace. But, but, but notice, before we move on, who this is for. It's for those, it says, who are in Christ Jesus. So this is not forgiveness for everybody. This is not salvation by death. You die, well, you're forgiven. You're, they're looking down on you. Just automatic. It's not that. This is no condemnation for who? For those who are in 
Christ Jesus. How do you get in Christ Jesus? By faith. So this is not a all mountains lead to the same place and all roads lead to the same thing. And just be sincere. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you're apart from Christ, if you are in the Adam car cart, you are facing your own penalty. You are facing your own condemnation and you will pay it forever. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we've looked throughout this book at all this beautiful language of union with Christ, that Christ is the the groom and the church is his bride, that he is the vine and we are the branches, that he is the head and we are the body. The Bible's filled with this language of union with Christ. We're one with him. And there's no condemnation for Christ because he paid it. And he rose victoriously. That counts for us. There is now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, verse 2, for means because, or he's about to give the reason. Here's the reason why there's no condemnation. For, the law of the spirit of life, that's a phrase that really, the, the law of the spirit of life, or the rule of the spirit of life, the principle of the spirit of life, well, what's the principle of the spirit of life? What's the principle that Paul's been talking about through this whole book? that the Spirit brings about. It's the gospel. It's good news. It's being made right with God by faith. That, that rule of that, that law of the Spirit of life, the gospel, has set you free. It's emancipated you. It's released you, set you free in Christ Jesus. Again, there's that union with Christ in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He's going to dig more in the coming verses into what that means and how that happened and the implications of that. But for what I want to do for the rest of our time here is I, I want to go back to those original things that I said at the beginning, those six things I listed out. And I want to, I want to so, so before I showed you, if you don't embrace this, here's, here's what will happen. And now I want to show you, if you do embrace this, what will happen. I want to go back to those things and say, with a, a real understanding of Romans 8, 1 and 2, here's how your life can change. Whether you're not a Christian yet or you are a Christian, this is how it can change if you believe these verses. And now get this, just one thing real fast. When I say if you believe this, because a lot of you will go, well, yeah, I believe it. I'm a Christian. But, but in the moment, is it a functional belief? Is it the operating belief? Is it the thing that's driving you? That's what I'm talking about. Because many of us would pass the test But in the moment, we don't believe that there's no condemnation. We still feel like God's mad at us. So here's what would happen if we would believe this. The first thing, you'll be free from guilt. Instead of being plagued by guilt, you'll be free from it. Yes, you'll know all the things you've done wrong. Yes, you'll know all the good things that you failed to do. Yes, you'll know you're guilty. And you are, right? No one is without sin. But he who's without sin cast the first stone, Jesus said, to the woman who was caught in adultery, the crowd that was ready to stone her. And they all put their stones down, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Free from that guilt. And, And a lot of us know, like, intellectually, yeah, I'm forgiven, but we still feel all the ways we've fallen short. We still feel like, I've never done enough. I've never achieved enough. I was watching something really sad. A lot of times this comes from our parents. 
Some of you had parents that just you couldn't please them. Nothing was ever enough. I was watching this really sad part of uh, the 30 for 30 documentary, The Price of Gold, about Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. That happened 20 years ago. So this documentary kind of was talking about that whole thing and talking about Tanya Harding's upbringing and how she, there's this story where she, she just had a mom that she couldn't please, right? She's on the phone telling her mom, I got sixth in the nation in this competition. And her mom's like, you stink. You haven't done enough. You're never going to amount to anything. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're going to be just like me. Heartbreaking. And some of you, that's the, that's the record that plays in your mind. That's what you hear all the time. You're stupid. You're dumb. You're an idiot. How could you make that decision? How could you do that? So you go, yeah, I'm free from, yeah, God's forgiven me, but you still live with this guilt. I'm not enough. I'm not achieving. I'm nothing. The offer here is that you could be free from that. That you could say, I'm going to believe what God says about me more than what anyone else says. More even than what I think. Embrace that by faith. If you embrace this, secondly, you won't need to prove yourself. We say a lot with our staff and with our team, um, and this is a phrase that's kind of becoming increasingly common in redemption, is you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Why? Because of this verse. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If God accepts me, that's all that matters. I have nothing to prove. I have no one to impress. Right? Because if you're living with a constant sense of guilt, then it's like, well, I gotta achieve and I gotta perform and I gotta do better. And you're freed from that. You're freed from the, the implication you know, that, that leads to workaholism. That leads to some of the most successful people, the quote unquote successful people that everyone holds up as a model, are so unhealthy. They're jacked. You would never want their life. Because you know what they're doing? They're trying to make up for some wound from dad that they never could do enough. And so they always gotta prove themselves. And I don't know about you, but like I, I get, okay, I don't have to prove myself to God. I can't. I'm a sinner. And I even, most of the time, get, I don't need to prove myself to anyone else. But you know what I struggle to believe? That I don't have to prove myself to myself. I don't know if it's the athlete in me or that kind of, like, I want to, like, prove I can do this. I can accomplish it. And if I fail myself, then I plagued with all sorts of stuff what's happening there is i'm forgetting romans 8 1 you have no one to impress nothing to prove here's the third thing if you embrace this you'll be able to learn from criticism instead of being so defensive and being so combative and being unable to listen because you think the person's attacking your identity you go you know my identity's in christ what matters is what God thinks of me. I can learn from criticism. I can listen to people. I can have my critics become my teachers. I can get better through the input of others. I can see their wounds as wounds from a friend that can be trusted. It changes your whole perspective. Again, it comes from the gospel. Here's the fourth thing. You'll have confidence in prayer. Prayer, prayer won't be any more of this God... Thanks for this day. Bless it. And you're thinking, I shouldn't be doing this. He knows what I did yesterday. He knows how I lost my temper. He knows what I said. He knows what I thought. Yeah, he's... Amen. 
is that really the way you think God wants you to enter a relationship with him? Of course it isn't. But our failure to believe this leads us to that place. It's like this. I, I, I like asking people this. What if I came to you and I said, hey, God wants to see you? What would your reaction be? What I do. Right? That's what a lot of people, a lot of people, if you're honest, be like, crud. He knows about that. What? He, what what's he going to, right? And then if you went into his office, what would you expect his face to be like? A lot of us, it would be this. <sighs> really? He did it again. Right, haven't we been over this? Tell me that doesn't ring true. Right? And, and if that's how we feel, no wonder we, no wonder we don't want to draw near to God. No wonder it's this tepid, lukewarm, you know, pagan babbling prayers. We just repeat the same thing over and over. No wonder. But what if you envisioned that when you went into God's office, he got out of his chair and he rushed over and he gave you a hug? What if you envisioned a beaming smile on his face? What if you envisioned his strong hands squeezing your back with a hug? See, I, I'm not a perfect dad, but I, I love my kids, and I love them even when they blow it. Does it disappoint me at times when they blow it? Yeah. Are there consequences when they blow it? Sure. But, but I always love and adore them. They're my kids. I know if you grew up and you didn't have a good dad, you didn't have a good home life, I know that's so hard to believe, and I know it's even frustrating to hear people talk about it, but you've got to believe it's true. Again, this is why it takes faith. Faith to go, God, I don't, know if I, I don't know if I can relate to that. I don't know if I can understand that, but will you help me to see what it means that you're a father? And to then be able to go to him boldly in prayer and say, God, regardless of what I've done, I know that I'm covered in the blood of Christ. Thank you for your grace. Pour out your blessing on me here. Here's specifically and boldly what I'm asking for you to do. God, I just want more of you. Imagine if your prayer was like that. How would it happen? It would happen through this verse. Through believing. There's no condemnation. Fifth thing. If you believe this, you'll go to Christ not addiction, when you feel the pressure. As I've said, there's all these, all these dangerous things. You go, right? I go to the pain medication. Right? We have, a whole, we have a whole category of food called comfort food. Right? That's where we go. When I need comfort, I'm under pressure, I'm under stress. And we go there. And some things are really socially acceptable, like food, and some things are not, like alcohol or drugs. But all of it is not Christ. And it's as if God is saying, I love you. Come to me. There's no condemnation here. Because what happens is when you go to all those other things, at, at the end when it's over, after the comfort's worn off, you're going to be like, dang it, I did it again. And it's just going to add to the pressure and add to the pressure and you're going to be more tempted to escape the pressure, to have a release from that pressure and that guilt and you're going to be more tempted to go back to it instead of believing the gospel and going to the Lord Jesus and saying, Jesus, cleanse me again. Forgive me again. I love you. Your grace is beautiful and sweet. This makes make a huge difference in your life. And finally, 
you'll have stronger motivation with this. See, some people would hear about the scandalous nature of grace and think, man, if you just got a credit card, you can just rack up whatever you want. Like, why would you obey? And if that's your question, if you think, well, if there's no rules, why would someone obey? Here's what that reveals. You know what that reveals? Your primary reason for obeying is fear. It's not trust. It's not love. It's fear. It's the only thing keeping you in line. That doesn't indicate a relationship, does it? It means you see God as king, but not father. I was talking with a guy after the first service. He said, you know, back when I was in high school, and I was an atheist going to a Christian school, and I was just raising hell all over our little town and, and doing everything I could. And, and I would, uh, you know, when I was around my parents, I would just do whatever. I didn't care. I didn't care what they thought. I didn't care what the consequences were. It didn't matter. But my grandma, she gave me unconditional love, no matter what I did. And I just couldn't act that way around her. Because there's something about love that's even more motivating than fear. Is fear an effective motivator? Yeah. That's why everyone uses it. Right? That's why you yell at your kids. You shouldn't, but that's why you do it, right? That's why, right? The, it, Threats are incredibly motivating. You know what's more motivating? Love. What is all of this passage about? It's saying God loves you. And the rest of it is going to say nothing can separate you from that love. There's no condemnation in Christ. You're united to him by faith. You are in him. He loves you. That nothing can stop that. That is a motivation. That's a motivation to obey. That's a motivation to say no to sin. That's what it's about. Love this quote. We'll finish with this by Ray Ortland. Junior, he says, God has replaced the best that we can do with the best that he can do. So stop performing and trust this. Therefore, now, no condemnation for those in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what good news. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that it never stops, it never fails, it never changes. God, thank you that even though we deserve your wrath, even though we deserve punishment, we don't get it. You give us grace. And God, I pray that we could begin to believe this. I pray that as we talk this week in our RCs, our communities, about these things, God, that you would free us to believe and to trust your word. Father, do that by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now we get to respond. So as I'm thinking through the so what of this, so what is this?